This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's Daily Politics Podcast. I'm Isabel Hardman and I'm joined by Katie Balls and James Forsyth. Well, after a bruising, and we often say this on our podcast, given how bruising things are at the moment for Boris Johnson, after a bruising few days, including the resignation of the Tory party chairman, Oliver Dowden, and two by-election defeats, Boris Johnson has decided to say that he wants to continue in Downing Street for another decade. James, this is a bit weird, isn't it? Yes. On the Sunday morning media round, Brandon Lewis tried to kind of manfully say that this was proof that Boris Johnson had a long-term vision for the country, that this was a man with a plan. But I think as the day went on and the reaction of Tory MPs to this uh, suggestion became clearer and clearer, uh, Downing Street kind of... But they're not saying he doesn't want a third term, but they are, they are de-emphasising the remark, shall we put it like that. And I think it was a kind of example of a slightly tone-deaf response, you know. And I think this is one of the big problems he's got, which is he at some point needs to talk about regaining trust. And yet he is still on this kind of uber bullish, you know, you ain't seen nothing yet approach, which is just not going to work with Tory MPs. And only adds to their doubts and tips a few more people o- over the edge. Now, I-, I don't think there is any imminent prospect of a, of a rule change to the 1922 committee. Damien Green was the leader of the One Nation group of Tory MPs, was on the Andrew Neil show last night. And he was saying not this side of a summer. But I think it is quite clear that if the political situation is the same in the autumn, if the Privileges Committee is critical of Boris Johnson, a rule change is becoming a more likely prospect. Katie, the other briefing that's been going around over the weekend is the possibility of a cabinet reshuffle. And a number of ministers have been named in these briefings as potentially for the chop. Tell us who's under threat and why. So in terms of who's allegedly under threat, you have a situation where I I think there was a report a few weeks ago in The Sun naming, for example, Anne-Marie Trevelyan, Kwasi Kwarteng. I think Therese Coffey's name has also emerged. But you're getting up to around five cabinet ministers. And in the weekend papers, there is more of this. The reason it's very interesting is, is it leans into James's point about how number 10 are just so bullish at the moment. So they're trying to claim that the prime minister is thinking big. Now, that's obviously in a way when he talks about third term to try and shut the question down but we've seen many previous leaders try to do that and it tends not to have that effect it tends instead just to rattle the base I think you can also see that attitude in terms of these briefings about a cabinet reshuffle where Oliver Dowden if we're looking at the reasons that he went one of the contributing factors is the fact that Downing Street were briefing that he was pretty rubbish at his job. And actually, I think there are lots of people, even supporters of Olive Dowden, who would say that he wasn't best suited to party chairman. But the prime minister did choose to move from a department where people thought he was pretty well suited to one where he where he wasn't. But the fact that all these briefings, I think, when you're on the edge already, do you think, well, do I want to stay in this position where effectively I'm having to suck up a lot of criticism on the behalf of the leader? And it could all get to a point where I'm just pushed out anyways why not leave on my own terms so I think when you're um, seeing briefings about why some cabinet ministers are underperforming at a time when the prime minister is undoubtedly weakened no matter what he says about being here well into the 2030s it just adds to that sense I think that I don't think number 10 have got a grip 
of the new political reality for Boris Johnson. Now, there is also a report in the Times saying that they might push back this reshuffle until the autumn. And I do think there are more sober voices in Downing Street from conversations I've had who think about a reshuffle and think, well, actually, you're never more powerful than just before one. Why not keep the idea floating around? And when it comes particularly to the junior ministerial resignations, which was always where I thought they were going to do the, the most in, t- in terms of changes, so many jobs have been promised over the past few months as Boris Johnson has come under pressure. If you look at lots of the figures on the back benches who are the most pro Boris Johnson, obviously some of them naturally think the Prime Minister makes their hearts sing, but others really think that they're being lined up for a really big job, or at least a way back into government, say if they lost their job in the last reshuffle. And and therefore I think there is a, a real risk that they are aware of that A you could actually disappoint a lot of your current supporters. But two, if you do what some some of the discussions are, which is moving people they think are not suitably loyal, so for example, Penny Mordant to the backbenchers, do you just create a base for some of these rebels um, to suddenly have a figure to rally around and to also have a story from the backbenchers as, you know, an anti-Boris candidate? And therefore, I think a reshuffle is really fraught with risk, whichever way you look at it. James, is there not also a risk that some ministers are, are going to, reshuffle themselves actually because there there is increasing pressure from the backbenches of the party for ministers who maybe want to be the next Tory leadership contender to to get out of what they see as an increasingly toxic front bench and so even if Boris Johnson wants to delay a reshuffle to the autumn is there not a risk that that there might be resignations anyway? I think what increases the likelihood of resignations is precisely this kind of story because people might decide it's better to jump before they're pushed. And I think when it comes to a reshuffle, Boris Johnson is in one of these German words that I can't quite pronounce properly, Zugwang, I think it's called in chess, when everything you do makes it worse. So anyone Boris Johnson sacks, I think, in the reshuffle, his actually political position worsens. Take George Eustace, who's been briefed against both to the Sun and to the Sunday Times, right? The Tories just lost Tiverton, a solidly rural seat. If you sack the agriculture secretary, he might say, well, I've been sacked because I stood up for British farmers and opposed trade deals that would have undercut them. Or he might stand up and say, I've been sacked because I was standing up for farmers against you know, plans to force them to deal with excess regulation on, on, on animals or habitats or that kind of thing. So I don't see that there is any simple moves that he can make in this reshuffle but strengthen his position. And also, as Katie said, the fundamental problem is, as Boris Johnson tried to win that confidence vote, there were more nods and winks given than there are jobs going. So how do you square that circle? And I think the problem he's got is, if the reshuffle is very limited, very small, there are some ambitious young Turks who will think, well, the Prime Minister is too weak to reshuffle, so if I'm going to proceed up the greasy pole, I need a new Prime Minister with more authority. And if the reshuffle is big... I think it, I, I don't think you have to be overly cynical about human nature to think that it's not a very hard to guess how anyone sacked will vote in the next confidence vote. We mentioned one of the names that keeps being in these reports, which is Amara Vijavellian. Well, we're just heading to quite a controversial policy from the government when it comes to steel tariffs and continuing them. So again, you could potentially create a platform for someone to quit. Uh, I'm not saying that she, she would, but well, I mean, in terms of the political risk and say, I believe in free markets and the government has a protectionist policy. So I, I think it just leans into James's point. Katie, just tell us a little bit more about the, the steel story, because that's been caught up in... Boris Johnson's struggles to maintain his authority as well, hasn't it? Yes, and we've had rumours of this in the sense that when Lord Guyte resigned, everyone was saying it must be party gate, 
maybe with a mix of wallpaper gate. It turns out it was also partly, we'll call it just for the benefit of the steel gate. James is, looks really uncomfortable that I did that, but I'm going to keep going on. Such an Americanism uh, that we have to put a gate to every single thing. You're the one who lived in America for a bit. But anyway, so we now know what the plan is. So it was alluded to in Lord Gite's res- resignation letter and then in, in Boris Johnson's response to it. And Lord Gite, the former ethics advisor, felt he'd been put in an odious position by being asked to consult on this. And this relates to continuing tariffs, steel tariffs that could be in breach of WTO rules. It's obviously quite interesting in the sense that Boris Johnson, during the e-referendum campaign, and lots of press often point to WTO as a framework you could work within because so you wouldn't need the EU rules, whereas this could actually be in conflict. Over the weekend, we've had more details. I think it's being pitched as something that's going to help in the Red Wall. And it's also something that we don't know yet. Labour have quite mixed messages on this. But in the past, they have called for more support for the British steel industry. So it'd be interesting to see how exactly they support or oppose us when it comes to the details. But it is going to make some Tory MPs uneasy. And it's been interesting looking just last night. So for example, Tom Tugendhat, who has suggested that one day he he may like to replace Boris Johnson, has come out swinging, suggesting that this is not a free market policy, which I don't think would dent his uh, credentials amongst the Tory grassroots. I think it's. I mean, steel is an interesting question, right? You can you can either argue a kind of national resilience level. You know, steel is such an essential material for building warships and all these things like that. But you have to have your domestic production. You can't you can't rely on 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 other people. Or you can argue that you know why protect an industry that is not that efficient and it's not that sensible to make steel in the UK given all the energy costs associated with it. I think there is also a problem here, which is we're getting into a very strange view of international law in this country in some ways, which is lots of countries go right up to the line on WTO stuff. They pick fights, they wait for the WTO to rule, etc, etc, etc. We seem to be kind of overcorrecting from the Northern Ireland Protocol stuff, where I think the government is on much weaker legal ground to saying that this act, which is much more conventional in terms of interstate relations, right? You know, just just go onto the WTO website and look at the number of unresolved disputes that are awaiting judgment, right? And and also there is an argument that these these tariffs are not illegal until somebody else complains about them. Now, I admit that probably wouldn't take very long, uh, and actually not even illegal until the WTO has ruled against them. I think that you know we we, we could end up kind of twisting ourselves into a pretzel here and ignoring the, the the much bigger question of how about the government's approach to the Northern Ireland Protocol. And on the protocol today, the government's plan will face its second reading in Parliament. So it's going to be a chance to see where the Tory splits are and how Labour plan to oppose it. We know, it again, we're going to hear, I think, a lot about the breach of international law. But on the Tory side, I think what's quite interesting is the sense that there are some actually who, for now, I think are keeping their powder fairly dry on the issue. Last night, for example, William Ragg, who's no strong Boris Johnson supporter, was saying he would likely reluctantly support the bill. But I think we're going to start to hear the specific grievances. Thank you, James. Thank you, Katie. And thank you for listening. The Spectator Economic Innovator of the Year Awards, sponsored by Investech, are open for entries. If you are an entrepreneur-led business bringing radical change to its sector, please apply at www.spectator innovator. We are looking for entries all across the UK and our closing date is the 4th of July.